We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Recapping a crazy divisional round weekend and looking ahead to the conference championships. That's what we're going to talk about today on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find Stealing Signals at bengretsch.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all of his great work on his. Sean, we missed uh, recording something last week. After my, all my travels, New Orleans, Houston, I ended up getting sick for an extended period. And then you also got sick. And so here we are. We're recording on our at our normal time on on Thursday morning. We're still kind of pivoting into the off season because we're during the season we're recording on Sunday nights and then on Thursday mornings we aren't recording on Sunday nights anymore. And then we missed our Thursday morning last week. We got to pivot to some different time frames, and we will. And and so we apologize to the listeners for the the gaps um, and those things. But we're back here today. We're going to talk a little bit about divisional round weekend, which was super fun. I was talking to you a little bit about, I, I mean, I think inevitably every year it's, it becomes like sort of the most fun weekend. The wild card weekend has more games, but you also have some teams every year that kind of don't belong in the playoffs that sneak in, or it feels like that. My favorite part of wild card weekend is you get the buy teams or excuse me, divisional round weekend is you get the buy teams brought back in. You have all the best teams playing, the ones that, you know, shown that they're the best, they're advancing. You get the Bills-Chiefs matchup this year. Some of those types of matchups already start to happen where it's like these are two legitimate Super Bowl contenders facing off. You also have the teams that are the upstarts that might be the story for that year getting their first big test, it kind of feels like. Like the year that the Bengals made the run of the Super Bowl, they went in the first round, I think, against the Raiders that year, and then they have to go into Tennessee, who's the number one seed. And that's fun. It's young Joe Burrow. Can he win on the road in Tennessee? We got to see that with CJ Stroud this year where he felt like a live underdog at Baltimore, even as like a 10-point underdog. And obviously Baltimore takes care of business. Similarly, Jordan Love and the Packers are playing incredible football down the stretch. They feel like a live underdog. They're going to San Francisco, who for months has felt like the maybe the Super Bowl favorite, the, maybe the best team in football. And they outplay them and probably should have won that game you get the Chiefs-Bills matchup. You get the Lions advancing and the storyline around them and, and their first playoff win this year, obviously, in so long. And now they get a second one, and now they're going to be playing in an NFC, NFC champ, uh, Conference Championship game. Maybe I, I wouldn't describe Tampa as as much fun of an upstart as Houston and uh, Green Bay sort of felt like, but, but certainly Tampa 
an interesting team, and that was an interesting game as well. It just inevitably always becomes my favorite weekend. The games feel like they mean more. They really start to matter ahead of the conference championships, which we have this weekend. Obviously, the Super Bowl, everything starts to get so, so important between the best teams going forward from this point. But you still get four games. So, like, this coming weekend, conference championships, great, but we only have two games. We got we got four games still. You still get a lot of football to sit and watch. And a lot happened across those four games. There was a lot of discussion on Twitter as a result of that stuff. I was really looking forward to getting a chance to chat with you about it. It is several days removed, but this is going to be a pod that's a little bit like our Sunday night shows where we kind of talk through some, some maybe some more real football stuff than fantasy football. Uh, so much fascinating stuff from that. A report this week that they're talking about potentially changing the fumble through the end zone rule as a potentially direct result or you know, certainly that, that report came after Michael Hardman fumbles through the end zone for the Chiefs against the Bills. You get the go for two down eight thing with the Bucks. started that discussion again. Not something we're going to go into a bunch because that's kind of a solved discussion. But I do think there's a little bit of unique elements there. Late in the fourth quarter, 49ers losing. They punt from the plus 40 on fourth and 10. We've talked about a lot of those types of decisions before. An interesting one to talk through, especially because the 49ers do go on to win that game. Um, some some of the decisions from Josh Allen late and how the clock worked in the Bills game. A lot of people wanted the Bills to be running all the clock down and scoring at the very last minute. A lot of really interesting football game theory and strategy elements. That's one of the things we love about this sport is that there are different ways to play end-of-game situations. It's one of the things we've talked about on the show a lot of times, Sean, and, and people that have for example, played a lot of video games or something. They've, they've simulated a lot of these end-of-game situations, and sometimes you get situations where the observers do have more experience with a lot of the, the timeout decisions and those things because they've played it out so many times. Um, there's been that that discussion of, you know, Madden gamers probably understand timeout usage um, in some respects better than even some NFL head coaches, which sounds crazy and blasphemous to a lot of people, and I understand that, but that's what's so fun about football. There's a lot of elements that None of us understand as well as NFL head coaches, X's and O's scheme, intricacies, those types of things. But when it comes strictly to the the constraints on the, the clock and on timeouts and those types of things, certainly it's plausible and possible that um, for that one little segment that is not correlated to the other parts of the job that, that a casual observer does understand more than an NFL head coach. So there's a lot of those types of things, those game management things, those things that are very easy to see. A lot of the other stuff that coaches do, we can't see there, you know, it's behind closed doors and, and we don't understand all of the intricacies of the job, but the stuff we get to see publicly during the games, the decisions, the punt decisions, some of the rules stuff that, that uh, administrates the game, all of this stuff is, is so fascinating. It's so fun to talk about. Uh, so I was, anyway, I was excited to chat with you about it and uh, yeah, we're going to do that a little bit here on the spot. We are. And as you mentioned, what a fun week of football. So, yeah, so many different things to go over. And Ben, where would you like to start? Because we have a game where C.J. Stroud actually still looked decent. And you compare his numbers to some of the quarterbacks, even the winning quarterbacks, and they look fine. He doesn't make the big mistake. But it's clear that against a defense, the caliber of the Baltimore Ravens that he's going to need more weapons and it'll be interesting to see you know how that works this week when we think about the Chiefs do they have enough weapons with Rasheed Rice and Travis Kelsey you had mentioned the fumble and one of the things that we wanted to talk about was like why is McCall Hardman touching the ball there <laughs> this 
kind of interesting dilemma where, I mean, this is still the Kansas City Chiefs. I've put the argument out there in several different venues. This is actually the best version of the Kansas City Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid that we've ever gotten, which is one of the things that makes it so tricky to evaluate where they are, what's going to happen this week with the Ravens, because basically the problem that they have is that their receivers have been like on the very outside edge of what's even possible right. not in terms of being bad, but what's even possible in terms of making mistakes. And you think about these two playoff games and generally speaking, the receivers played better. And as a result, the offense looked fine. They more or less controlled both of these games. And that would have been more evident, obviously, if you don't get the bumble through the end zone, you have a game here against a bills defense that has played better since they changed offensive coordinators and has somewhat covered up for the fact that the offensive coordinator change probably was a disaster for the bills in both the short and long terms. But you have this game here where in a key moment, the Chiefs are using McCole Hardman. And it's interesting because in this particular game, for the first time really all season, Marquez Valdez-Scantling has a couple of reasonably tough catches. And instead of having reasonably easy catches that he misses, he makes a couple of difficult plays. And as soon as you do that, it completely changes the Kansas City Chiefs into looking like an unstoppable offense again. And suddenly you have the Bills doing a lot of weird things in this game to try and control the damage that Patrick Mahomes is able to do to them on their field, which is one of the big talking points. But for me, when that ball gets fumbled through the end zone and, you know, I, as a biased chiefs observer, I'm not completely clear that that call should have even gone that way as opposed to him being down. And yet it didn't seem a hundred percent clear to me either as an unbiased person. It did seem on social media more clear to others. I was like, I mean, it has to be irrefutable evidence. And in my mind, I was like, I, a lot of times they say that he still has it. Like, you do start to sort of see it move, but his hand is also still on the ball. It's not clearly loose. And to me, I don't think it was completely irrefutable that the ball was definitely out. I think a lot of the reactions were like, this is such a huge game-changing play. This would be incredible if it happened. Oh, yeah, that ball's out before the hip's down. You know, it's like almost like the gravity of the situation influences – your thought on whether or not it's actually irrefutable. I don't think you can irrefutably say that ball was completely out of his possession before his hips down. And really what it came down to is even as they were showing the replays, they're saying, yeah, it does get loose right before his hip. I mean, it comes down to like a fraction of a second to say that it came loose right before the hip came down. For some people that may have felt irrefutable, incontrovertible, whatever words they use to me that I agree with you. It was I understand why they made the call. I also think they could have let it stand. And so we head into a game this week where Kadarius Tony is practicing. And I mean, this is a weird dynamic because as I'm watching this game, obviously with friends and family, my immediate furious reaction is that I put all of this on Andy Reid because there is no universe in which McCall Hardman should have a high value touch in this situation he's not a good football player and this is exactly the kind of risk that you take and it's the thing that's been burning them all season sean years ago we started stealing bananas in part at, through some fun conversations we had after the kansas city tampa bay super bowl we've told this story on the show before we talked for like a couple hours about it 
and agreed that maybe it wasn't as clear because it felt like Tampa dominated that game to a lot of observers. Tampa's defensive line was so good. I'm taking people back three, four years. And especially in the second half, Tampa got out to an early lead, but everything really went their way. And it was very fortunate in the first half, but they got out to an early lead. And then as a result of that, we're able kind of to pin their ears back and really attack Patrick Mahomes. And yet still at times it was like, man, if some things went differently, Kansas City had a chance to win that game. I bring this whole game up because one of the reasons everything went very, very well for the Bucs in the first half is a drive was extended on a field goal that was made. But Michael Hardman trying to block it was the outside edge rusher and went offside in a situation where you get a stop in the Super Bowl and you have to be very pumped about it. He runs offside on a made field goal, extends a drive. Um, there was another, you know, another drive extending play that was a personal foul. We never got a good, uh, you know, replay of. There's a lot. I'm not gonna go back to this game, but the um, the point is that Michael Hardman. I thought of that. Not this weekend, but the weekend, the game prior when he made some mistakes against Miami when Kansas City wins their first playoff game this year. And I actually tweeted, Chiefs fans thought they were done with Michael Hardman. Like, LOL, like this is pretty hilarious that they got rid of him this year and then they brought him back midseason and here he is making plays that dramatically affect their win probability in a playoff game. That happened against Miami. <laughs> and they still gave him a high-value touch at the goal line against Buffalo, Sean. I mean, if he scores there, the game's over. And Kansas City appears to have completely and totally dominated this game. You get even more pressure on Sean McDermott around the decision to fake punt. And I love teams being aggressive. I do like the element of surprise when that play happened, that I told, again, everybody that I was watching the game with, be ready for a fake here. And then it's like dot, 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 even though that would make absolutely no sense. And then they do fake it and they do stop it. And it's a big play. The coaching on the Bills side was pretty apocalyptic in this game. And I think there is a pretty legitimate conversation around the Bills being just as much in need of new voices in a new direction as say the philadelphia eagles and i don't know very much about the nba it's not one of the sports leagues that i follow i'm big into college basketball instead but when you have a situation like the milwaukee bucks making a change despite you know what their recent success is i mean in many cases that's actually going to be a pretty big mistake again i don't know what the actual circumstances are but you do have to evaluate your coaching staff within the context of what your personnel happens to be. And the bills are just absolutely lighting on fire. This window that they have with Josh Allen. So, I mean, this game was so rich with the different things going on. I, I mentioned McCall Hardman because you can't run that play. Obviously the chiefs are dealing with a situation where they don't have Jerry McKinnon, who would be the most obvious kind of gadget player who's less likely to make these catastrophic mistakes that they're seeing from their guy I mean, when you're a Chiefs fan, i mean you're looking at Kadarius tony perhaps being an option for this week and you're thinking like please save us right it's the chiefs have players potentially getting healthy that you do not want to see on the field in any way shape or form <laughs> as a chiefs fan because you know that they're going to go out there and make those mistakes so I mean, we've been asking for players like mvs to be replaced 
And yet from the Chiefs perspective, I mean, this isn't like the Green Bay Packers. Every additional person down the depth chart has been worse and worse. Now, then there is one caveat there, and that's that, I mean, we wouldn't mind seeing some Justin Ross. It doesn't seem like that is going to be the move this deep into the playoffs. But working but I, through what the Chiefs did here, I mean, what are your thoughts on how they look, what they're doing? Again, I'm very biased with this as a longtime Chiefs fan, but it seemed to me like the biggest takeaway from divisional round weekend is that despite all the sound of fury during the season and the very legitimate criticisms of what the Chiefs did and what Patrick Mahomes did, that he is clearly the best quarterback in the NFL and that all the discussion about that can probably now be put in the rear view. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yeah, I I completely agree with you there. I think Patrick Mahomes has been has taken his game to another level once the postseason hit. Like many expected that he might. I, I've written before that I think over the last couple of years that Kansas City has intentionally planned for the postseason, essentially knowing that they aren't actually at risk of missing the postseason and some of those things. This year, the big storyline was that they might actually have to play some road games, and they do have to play some road games, but they are – prepared to play those road games is what they showed. I think, I, I think Buffalo played a, a, a pretty decent game as well. I agree with you that there should be some lit. I, I wouldn't surprise. It would not have surprised me if they decided to, to fire Sean McDermott and move on for the reasons you said, I do think that you run into the same wall enough that new voices and new direction is um, justifiably a part of the discussion. But to me, and we talked about this, I remember last postseason with Kansas city, that they are doing things to prepare for the postseason, even during the regular season. They used a lot of jet motion last year in the Super Bowl. They waited until the Super Bowl to show the jet motion return play twice in the fourth quarter, key touchdowns. They're trailing, I believe, by eight, score the first touchdown and get a two-point conversion to tie, 
score the second one on the next drive to go ahead. You need to get seven on both those drives to go on to beat the Eagles in last year's Super Bowl. And for both of those touchdowns, the red zone conversion rate, we had, I can't remember which announcer, but an announcer at some point this weekend, I believe it may have been Romo on this game, saying that these games come down to red zone conversion rate. And they do. When you play two really good teams, we talk about this as a game of possessions. Being able to convert touchdowns as opposed to kick field goals is a massive element of who wins and loses these football games. It's probably not emphasized enough. The, the Chiefs and the, in Chiefs the have been generally bad at it coming in. Right. And they, in a key spot last year in the Super Bowl, pulled out plays twice. One went to Tony. The second one, because I think Tony was banged up, went to Sky Moore. They both had short touchdowns, walk-in touchdowns. And we've talked about this on the show, but they, you know, uh, I can't remember who did the breakdown at the moment because it was a year ago, but the Eagles knew this jet motion was coming. They had planned to do this rock and roll defense where rather than the cornerback on one side following the jet motion all the way across the field and maybe getting beat into the opposite flat, they rock or roll, whatever it is, roll back to to safety and the safety rocks or something to beat essentially, whether the terminology is correct, the cornerback rolls to safety, the safety beats the motion man to the other side of the field because he's in the middle of the field and he has a head start. And so they replace and basically call switch on defense. The Chiefs knew this from film. They had not shown the motion return play, but they sent a player in motion, got the Eagles to do that where the corner on the side of the field where the motion started drops back to safety and the safety takes off to the other side of the field. But then they ran the receiver back to the side of the field where he started from and there's no one there and they get two walking touchdowns. My whole point there is that was all set up by their play throughout the year and that Kansas City held something in their back pocket until the Super Bowl. I mean, they're thinking about ways to play off of what they've put on film for the playoffs particularly. It is not a surprise to me or, or shocking to me to say that Patrick Mahomes has played a lot better these last two games, that this is a team that, despite issues in the regular season, has been sort of holding back their best versions of themselves for the postseason with the knowledge of the AFC is insane. Like one of the other things that is a huge storyline about this year, there's been a lot of talk about the Panthers took Bryce Young and the Texans took C.J. Stroud and how that was a mistake for the Panthers because C.J. Stroud looks so generational. One of the big ramifications of that is we now have a – the next great young quarterback is in the AFC again because we know that the AFC playoffs and then we talk about the Kansas City potentially planning for the playoffs are loaded with great teams with great quarterbacks. You have Mahomes, you have Allen, you have Burrow, you have Lamar Jackson. Maybe the best quarterbacks in the NFL are all on the AFC side. For a couple of years, it was like, yeah, well, you still have Aaron Rodgers on the other side. He's now going to be on the Jets. He obviously didn't play this year. There's, I mean, Jalen Hurts was great uh, in 2022 maybe not as great in 2023. Also some of the other Eagles issues, not necessarily his fault. He was banged up as well. It'll be interesting to see what happens to the rest of his career, but there's not quarterback play in the NFC like the AFC. And if the Panthers drafts CJ Stroud, that balances it a little bit, but instead we have one more great quarterback in the AFC for the next however many years, but you would understand why a team like the chiefs might be planning to be the best versions of themselves or intentionally trying to be the best versions of themselves in the AFC playoffs. I think that's what we've seen. One thing I won't let him off the hook for, I think he made a great point that down the depth chart, it just gets worse and worse and worse for Kansas City, and a lot of their guys have not been productive. However, like they had a really wide rotation of skill guys. They narrowed that down over time, and yet 
Michael Hardman plays 19 offensive snaps in this game, 38% snap share. Richie James plays 15 for a 30% snap share. You have Watson at 44%. You have MVS at 50%. You have Noah Gray at 60% because of a lot of two tight end formations. They're still doing that. And Rasheed Rice is only at 64%. So they're still doing a lot of those rotational things. And so part of my response would be, I, I don't think it would be crazy for them to be able to field a I mean, they would have to play more Justin Watson. You mentioned potentially Justin Ross, but even if they're not going to go there, play more Justin Watson with Rasheed Rice and Travis Kelsey. We're going to play as much too tight end as you are with Noah Gray as well. And then play some MVS who, who I mean, he's not good, but he's not. I just I don't understand how Michael Hardman needs to factor in there. He's like the sixth or seventh non-running back skill position player, but you're still making room for him to play 38% of the snaps. That's a mistake. I, it just, and it's not necessary. They, they, they don't, it's a self-inflicted wound. They don't need to be that rotational, I don't think, at this stage of the season. That's confusing to me. But, yeah, I mean, I think everything else you said makes sense that the Chiefs are playing incredibly well. One of the big storylines late in this game that I ended up spending some time talking about on Twitter and I want to talk through with you a little bit was this idea that the Bills needed to try to run the entire clock out and score and take the lead and leave no time on the clock. They were down 27-24. They took over with 8.23 left, that they needed to do an eight-minute drive and score at the end. There was some criticism of Josh Allen, particularly, that after they did run the ball on first and 10 from the Kansas City 27, they only gained one yard, and they run the clock way down after that that rush attempt to the two-minute warning. There was 2.46 at the snap. So the, the rush play that only gained one yard apparently took up six full seconds. And then they run the four, full 40 seconds, go to the two-minute warning. They come back from the two-minute warning. It's second and nine at the Kansas City 26. And that's the play where Josh Allen throws deep middle to Khalil Shakir, who looks to be coming open. But Allen's throw is short of him. On replay, we see that uh, Chris Jones, Kansas City Chiefs defensive lineman, walks the left tackle right back into Josh Allen's lap, this blindside blocker that he can't see as he sets to throw, bumps into him as he's releasing and he's not able to get enough on the pass. As a result, he misses Khalil Shakur. My point there was this wasn't him taking a shot. This was a throw that if he's not run into is a, is a is an easy touchdown. Khalil Shakur is wide open. I think he makes the right read, makes he makes the right throw. One of the things that was talked about on Twitter was that Stephon Diggs on that play was open underneath and that Josh Allen needed to be throwing underneath on that play to continue to run the clock. And then ideally, because I don't think Diggs gets a first down even if they complete underneath, they get the first down then on third down or even on fourth and short. They're at the 26 now and it's uh, second and nine. So the first down marker is at the 17. If they get right to the first down marker, maybe they get first and 10 at the 17 or the 16 more likely you pass the first down marker by a couple of yards. You're at first and 10, maybe at the 14 or something. And you can say that there is a possibility of another first down before scoring a touchdown. But there's also a lot of scenarios where if you just convert that first down, you convert it up to the 10 and now you're in a goal to go situation, which I'm emphasizing because with two minutes left, the Chiefs still had two timeouts. Any incompletion or, or play that ends out of bounds is going to stop the clock. For the Bills to have navigated from the 26-yard line those final two minutes and run all that time off the clock, they needed to be tackled inbounds 
at least twice for the Chiefs who are going to stop the clock to try to preserve time to get the ball back, at least twice to run the Chiefs timeouts, and then at least two more times to run 40 seconds each time to get from two minutes down inside of about 30 seconds so you're not leaving too much time on the clock for the Chiefs. If that's the idea, that he shouldn't have been trying to throw downfield in that situation, it means you have to be tackled in bounds a minimum of four times. And again, you're already at second down and you're at the 26-yard line, so you have to get this first down you have to be tackled inbounds multiple times while you do it and then tackled inbounds multiple times on the next set of downs, which, like I said, there was a possibility that you could not have had a goal to go, but there's a possibility that you would have had a goal to go or it was at least close enough that once you get tackled inbounds two more times, you're in a third down now at like the five-yard line and you have one or maybe two plays because you're you're probably kicking the field goal regardless on fourth. You're down three. They end up missing a field goal right after this play, the sequence that I'm describing. And obviously that missed field goal could have tied the game. But a lot of people thought was still leaving too much time on the clock for Mahomes. Again, my whole point is I don't think this was an optimal situation as much as I've been a fan over the years of wanting possession last at the half, wanting possession last at the game. You can't just say that the, the team has to be able to run the whole clock out every single time in every situation and then score on third down in a situation where they have to kick on fourth. You're basically leaving them one play to successfully convert after they successfully run all the clock. And you can't just flip that switch. The Kansas City Chiefs have a good defense. They're trying to stop you. I just thought that was a really silly line of thinking and, and, the way that it was described after the game that Allen made a mistake. And I do know that there are bills fans that were intelligently describing some situation, uh, some stuff about this where maybe situationally Allen shouldn't have been reading that play downfield. Cause the other issue is Diggs dragging across the field is not in his line of sight when he's reading the play downfield to Shakir. You can't just look at a player that's open and say, he should have seen this guy. But one of the points that I saw that was made saliently was that it should have been, a pre-snap read and he should have been looking for the short route and or to run and that his rushing had been so effective the whole drive that that could have helped them convert and get tackled in bounds four times and it was worth trying and I do understand the idea behind it but it certainly was not optimal and you certainly can't in my opinion criticize Allen and say that he was making a mistake to throw to an open player in the end zone and then to say well, now the Chiefs are going to be down four, and they have to go the whole length of the field and score a touchdown, not just a field goal to tie. Obviously, a couple of years ago, the Chiefs were able to get in field goal range and force overtime in just 13 seconds against the Bills. The Bills remember that. But if you leave a full two minutes on the on the clock, the Chiefs still have to get all the way into the end zone if you do score on that pass to Khalil Shakir. And the Bills had two timeouts of their own. There are some scenarios where if the Chiefs score too quickly, the Bills wind up with the last possession. It's all too much in my mind to try to optimize to the degree that you're saying that Josh Allen made a mistake to try to score a touchdown. It is his job in that scenario to get his team in the end zone first and foremost. The time stuff, very, very important, but it is secondary and it doesn't always work out optimally. That's the big point that I wanted to emphasize is I don't think in this situation it was fair to assume that they could just run the clock and then score on the one down that they would have had to try to score in all likelihood. There are so many things there. And and one of the things that, you know, we talked about before the show and you mentioned is simply that, I mean, it's the offense's job to score the touchdown. It's the defense's job to stop 
the opponent once they get the ball back and both sides of that have to work the other thing that you mentioned that is really important to understand here is just what the gaps are right if the bills try and run the clock out and kick a field goal yeah you've changed some things maybe slightly in your favor but there's still so much to still accomplish if you score a touchdown you've shifted the entire game to being dramatically in your favor and if patrick mahomes pulls off you know historic touchdown drive at the very end then that's going to be something that lingers you know forever for bills fans but it's something you have to be able to deal with subsequently to accomplishing the initial objective which is scoring the touchdown you've got to go ahead and a touchdown is going to put you up by four which completely changes because now a field goal by the chiefs won't do it you look at this game and it's just such a bizarre game right because the bills have eight drives and they have 78 plays they had a 31 play advantage in this game the Chiefs outgained them by three yards per play. And I guess my biggest problem with how the Bills went about this game is simply that they played it either as a massive overdog, a massive favorite, or as a big underdog. And by that, I mean, when you're running the ball the way that they are, you're basically saying that we're going to dominate this game. We don't think the other team can match up with us it can be similar to what Michigan does in most of their college football games, right? Or you're saying we're such a significant underdog at home in the playoffs with Josh Allen that we've got to suck all of the air out of this game. And our game plan is basically about taking the ball out of Patrick Mahomes hands. Now you do want to accomplish some of those things. And I think you could argue that in their own way, shape and form, the bills did accomplish some of those things as a byproduct of what they did again they ran 31 more plays but that's not the goal the goal is to score more points and you look at how the game ends up developing and even though there are times in this game where it feels like the bills have run the ball pretty effectively i mean james cook does not even average 3.5 yards per carry and one of the things that happened was that he gets stuffed multiple times in the last three drives in a way that changes the dynamic right? So we're talking about very few possessions. The bills were scoring very effectively. So you could argue that through most of the game, their plan did work, but then you have these last three drives where they are stopped on downs. They're forced to punt. And then they go on this 64, 16 play drive <laughs> where they only gain 54 yards and they miss a field goal at the end of it. This is a should, drive... have, been a, should have been a 23 play drive. Apparently Sean, <laughs> <laughs> this is a drive where they give the ball back to Josh Allen and he's throwing or running himself. And when you have this unique weapon that is Josh Allen, I mean, I'm a big fan of James Cook. I think that he can be an impact player in the NFL, especially in the right offense. And you could argue that maybe the Joe Brady version of this is going to be that right offense. He does have an unfortunate drop, although I don't know if the drop made as big a difference as it you know kind of feels like when it happens. But when you work through this here and these last three drives don't go in the direction that they're looking for part of this is just a matter of if you are the favorite at home this game has to be built around josh allen and it's going to be josh allen down to the final plays and so he's the guy with the ball in his hands at the end he's not able to make those plays the idea that you would have been better off if you had played more for a field goal that was a field goal that was easier and that took place with less time on the clock and then we go into overtime it's a it's a losing mindset when you have a Josh Allen. The whole idea of this Bills team and the fact that they were finally at home against the Chiefs and that they had this late season surge and they're going to be a big threat 
in the AFC Championship game against the Ravens is that you have a dominant team. You have Josh Allen as this unique figure who can do the things that they mostly did on that final drive. And you have a Sean McDermott-led defense that is well above average and can make plays against the opponent in that area as well. And one of the things that we have witnessed now in both of these losses, this most recent one, and then obviously last year where they get humiliated by the Bengals, is that that defense isn't anywhere. And they're not able to use Josh Allen, this unique weapon, to win the games that matter. And so I think you've got to go back to the foundation there as a member of the Bills front office as a decision maker and say, have we built this? Do we have a coach that believes in this in the right way that we actually think that Josh Allen is one of those guys? Because clearly the Bengals think that about Joe Burrow. Clearly the Ravens think that about Lamar Jackson. Clearly the Texans are going to believe that through the ages with CJ Stroud. I mean, you made an argument that this AFC is so tough because of these elite QBs. And I think that that is completely and totally true. The Bills have to believe that in the way that they put together their game plans in the most important games. If they want that to actually be the case about them, if they want to join this group of teams like the Ravens and the Chiefs and the Bengals. And that would be my question is whether the coaching staff and even, you know, it's not necessarily Bills fans who are saying, oh, they should have tried to run it down and score at the end. But yeah, I mean, you've got to make the touchdown play there. If you have a shot at it, your superstar quarterback has to pull the trigger. You're not always going to make it. But to go back and say, like, we should have been aggressive. We shouldn't have tried. Yeah. We should have tried to run the clock out. For me, that's both bad strategy and it's a losing mentality that won't get you where you need to be. And I saw some people saying that was sort of a straw man, but I, I literally, I mean, there's, there's a big football account that tweeted that this was a mistake from Josh Allen, that they're, isn't an explanation for what he was thinking that he should have been thinking something else. And I just disagree fundamentally. And, and obviously you do too, Sean there that um, it's putting too much on Josh. Like, like you said it, the, the game needs to be on Josh Allen's shoulders to go score. It's putting too much on his shoulders to say that he also needs to, in this particular situation, in some situations, yes, you do. You need to manipulate the clock at the end, but to have been able to manipulate the clock right down to the very end and then score a touchdown still. Because to your point, kicking the field goal at that point isn't going to work either. I mean, that's just making the game a coin flip in overtime. It just doesn't work. It do, it's putting way too much onto Allen and the offense when you – and I'm like so pro making it about the offense and not putting it on your D. But at some point, the way that it all adds up is like, yeah, your defense just needs to go out and get a stop. Like the, the old school football thinking makes sense. Go get a stop. Go get a stop and uh, and you can win the game. We talked about the Miko touches. There's some talk now about the fumble out of the end zone rule being changed. I don't know if we, now that we've spent a lot of time on this game, should really go into that a ton. I think that's a little bit of a silly thing. Was there anything you wanted to, to talk about that, that rule potentially changing, or should we talk a little bit about the well, Ben, you know games? that I believe in changing all the rules to make the game more exciting, changing all the rules to remove bureaucracy and to increase fairness and increase scoring i don't think that fairness is something that needs to favor the defense but this one i mean the reason the rule exists the way it does is because if you're going to reach the ball across the goal line with defenders trying to knock the ball away is that there's some risk there and if you can't control it then you can't reach it out and so when that play happens it's a crushing 
it's a crushing play for Chiefs fans because now you're like, okay, we actually did come into Buffalo and dominate, and now we're going to lose because of this play. Luckily, it doesn't work that way, but I'm not like, oh, the rules are against us. Again, I mean, Andy Reid can't call that play. Nicole Hardman can't fumble. You know what the risks are when you blindly hold the ball out there. I mean, it can be fumbled and also recovered by the defense. I mean, you're, there are multiple types of things that can happen. You just you simply can't fumble right there. Yeah, there's a lot of people that are you know emphasizing that whether the ball goes out of balance on you know right in front of the pylon or right beyond the pylon is just a couple of inches and a and everywhere else if you fumble out of balance you retain possession. And I, I see that point when you delineate using the out-of-bounds line. I was saying to you before the show, I think you could just as easily delineate about the goal line because you can also say that whether a player gets over the goal line or gets stopped in front of the goal line, in some cases on fourth downs is the difference between a touchdown or a turnover on downs. Uh, at your own end zone, whether you're sacked in the end zone or a, are able to just get the ball outside of the end zone is the difference between it just being second down after the sack or it being a safety points punting to the other team. That The goal line... The, the couple inches, it's just not – it's not like a compelling argument to me that, that there's a difference between a ball going slightly over the goal line or not over the goal line. That's the aspect of the goal line everywhere. I mean, it's this is a very special zone, you know, this end zone that we – you know, that's where points are awarded and important things happen. Um, I think it does come back to people don't trust replay, right? I was saying that it doesn't seem to me – that that play met the indisputable standard. There are plenty of plays where a player is reaching the ball out and it's scored a touchdown or it's not scored a touchdown. And then the officials look at it and they're like, okay, we're going to change the call. And half of the fans are like, you're going to change the call. I thought the standard was you had to be able to tell. <laughs> you can't tell. So that for me is why we get so much discussion about this is that people don't trust the calls and they don't trust the officials to look at the calls in slow motion and make the calls correctly. That's right. Um, the Bucks lions game, just sort of working back through the weekend, the, the Chiefs-Bills was the final game. Bucks lions game earlier had a couple interesting ones. It had the go for two down eight situation. People were criticizing that. One little point I had on this was that the broadcast was talking through what I think it's sort of mistaken with this discussion. They were talking through if, if uh, a conversion is a 50-50 probability – and the field goal is only like 95% that you would expect to make the conversion one of two times, and then the field goal isn't quite the same probability. Like like it's a, a question of that argument essentially argues the expected value of going for two on every touchdown. That, that the expected value is higher for going for two on every TD, and that's a fair argument. That is not the discussion on the going for two down eight. The going for two down eight is specifically – when it's late enough where you don't expect the other team to score any more points and it's about you having two scores and it's the sequential element of it. If you convert the, con the, the first conversion, then you can kick an extra point. So it's not just if it's a 50-50 proposition. We do typically say that's a good estimate for conversion rates. But the point is if you, if you do convert the first one 50% of the time, you kick an extra point the next time and you win in regulation. If you don't, then you still have a possibility of converting the second one and forcing OT, which is sort of a net, and it's 25% of the time. It's 50% of a 50%. That's sort of a net, uh, you know, a net zero with this decision to go for two down, down eight. If you lose both conversions, that's 25% of the time also, that's a net loss by making this decision. But it's essentially 50% of the time you gain something, 25% it's neutral, 25% you lose. 
The only way this doesn't make sense is not just marginal go for it rates. It's if the go for it rate or if the if the rate of missing both of your conversions is greater than uh, the likelihood of converting the first one. Because again, it's a sequential thing. If you convert the first one, you don't go for it a second time. And so if your rate is so low, and I think the break-even point is like 33% or something. I can't remember the exact number. Someone's broken it down before. But you it's the rate of you missing both of them has to be greater than the likelihood that you make the first one. So if it's 50% of the time that your conversion rate is, the likelihood you make the first one is 50%. The likelihood that you miss both is 25%. It's 50% times 50%. Anyway, we don't need to dwell on this too, too much, but... It's just, I, I think they described it a little bit wrong on the broadcast. I saw a lot of people talking about it, defending the decision on Twitter, but still not understanding that 50%, 25%, 25% split thing. And I, I got some genuine questions about it. It is something that we've talked about for several years, but I do think there are some people that do, still don't necessarily understand the sequential part of it. Why it's a thing down eight. When you score, when you're down 14 and you can kick a field goal to make it seven, you should go for two to try to make it six. And it's pretty clear. The math is pretty clear on this. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Well, you just need to maintain the flexibility, right? Because if the whole point is that you're going to go for two to win, then you need to go for it the previous time in order to know what you need to do on the final possession. Because if you wait until the final possession and you go for two and you don't get it, then you don't have that option of going back and having gone for two the previous time because you were going to need to get one of the two of them, right? And so I think that that's been something that has been odd about teams coming from behind in the past as well, where if it's a matter of you're going to have to get one two-point conversion in there somewhere in order to tie the game, you need to go for it earlier as opposed to later because you need to know the number of possessions that you might need in order to actually get all the way back to a tie. Now, that information is also information that defense or the opposing team will also have when they are figuring out their tactics and maybe they can bleed more time off of the clock from you if you go for it early and don't get it but it's knowing what you need to have happen and how that's going to work as the possessions play out the rest of the game that determines your strategy at that point in time so exactly what you're saying there because you need to be able to go for two if you miss you've got to go for it the first time not just wait for the second time and then the other big thing that came from this game was at the very end, and this missed a lot of people. My brother was texting me a bunch about it. I missed it live. After Baker Mayfield throws an interception, the Lions get the ball back, and they have just enough time to kneel the game all the way down to about like 10 seconds left, given that the Bucs still have one timeout. 
But Jared Goff snaps the ball on second down with 15 seconds on the play clock instead of running the play clock all the way down. And then he snaps the ball with about 15 seconds on the play clock on third down as well instead of running the clock all the way down. If the Bucs then take a timeout after third down, it forces the Lions to run a play on fourth down with about 35 seconds left rather than just they, – they just let those 35 seconds run off and the game was over. They were down eight after Mayfield had thrown that interception. Had they called that timeout, it was the ball was going to be at about the 32, 33-yard line. The Lions could have kicked a field goal, but it would have been about a 50-yarder. And if they missed the 50-yarder – and you're in a playoff game. You might as well make them kick it, right? If they do miss that 30-yarder or 50-yarder, you're getting the ball at the 40 with about 30 seconds left, no timeouts, and you need a touchdown and a two-point conversion, but you only have to go 60 yards to potentially extend your season – I was telling you before the the show that I think if they do actually call the timeout and give the the Lions the decision, it wouldn't surprise me if the Lions punt instead of kicking a 50-yarder and say, okay, well, we're going to make you go the length of the field in 30 seconds without a timeout. Start at the 10 as opposed to the 40. And I almost always criticize punting from plus territory. Another thing I have on our list for the wild things from divisional round was the 49ers decision to punt from the plus 40. I don't know if time to break that down, but – they punted while losing in the fourth quarter from the plus 40. Thought it was a terrible decision. The Lions doing so here with a limited amount of time left and the Bucks not having timeouts probably makes more sense than risking a missed 50-yard field goal and setting them up at the 40 in terms of you're just thinking through disaster outcomes at that point. And the, the most disaster outcome is giving up a touchdown the other way. And so if your kicker does miss the field goal, then... So anyway, the Lions, I think the right decision for them probably would have been to punt. But if the Bucs just use this timeout rather than just letting the clock run out, and they did have a timeout. And one of the things my brother pointed out to me, they did call their three timeouts earlier, but they were awarded one back because there was a penalty called on one of the plays. Maybe that was part of the confusion. One of the things we hypothesized is maybe the timeout tracker in the stadium didn't give them their timeout back and wasn't displaying right. It was certainly displaying on the TV. And then I, I saw some people saying that the display on the TV must be wrong. Uh, I'm trusting my brother on this one, but he went back and he claims that they got their their timeout back and they did have a timeout. I mean, they're, they're, it's just not uh, – that part of it's not disputable. I also know that the reporters uh, for the, the Bucks asked Todd Bowles about this after the game, so they must have looked at it as well and I think confirmed that. Bowles' explanation essentially boiled down to we'd done the math before Jared Goff failed to run the play clock down and determined there wasn't going to be enough time if we called our timeout. But once Jared Goff decides to leave that much time on the clock, the math should have changed, Todd Bowles. He, he said there would have been about 10 seconds left or 12 seconds left or whatever it was, which was true if Goff ran the play clock down. It was a wild sequence in a playoff game, and it leaves you wondering what both sides were doing. What is Jared Goff doing not running the play clock down, and what are the Bucks doing not calling a timeout after he does that to potentially you know, still win this game? The game is not so out of the question that they should just be giving up well the first thing that when you brought all this to my attention that i thought was about the way that i watch the game so i watch so much sports that i do tend to wait for the games to kind of match up to where they would be conclusion wise and then watch through them quickly otherwise your entire day every day is just sitting in front of the television so I watched the games, even some games. <laughs> hey, Sean, that that's my entire day. That's some of our listeners' entire day. Don't you <laughs> discredit the, the validity of sitting in front of our TVs, TVs all day. 
I'm, I'm there point. a lot. It's there's <laughs> there's no uh, there's no criticism of of sitting in front of the TV. That's for sure. But so we get to some of the end of these games, and you're going through it quickly, and you know you get the final play, and you're like, okay, you know, we've we've got it. It's over. And you know I'll watch some of these games with my sister, and she's like, are you sure we need to watch through all the way to the end? And I'm like, no, the, the clock is in a situation where it's done. Now I think I've got to have to follow <laughs> her advice. You gotta watch and make sure they do the kneel process correctly. I don't know. This this is mind-boggling to me. I'm glad that the game wasn't <laughs> decided in any way, shape, or form based on this. It seems like both teams had run the math and then forgot to pay attention. And it makes more sense that they stopped paying attention if in fact there was some confusion about the timeout. So yeah. I'm just going to give them the benefit of the doubt and the, the, the part of it is what's happened here. F- for sure. My, my brother asked me who's basically who's dumb or bulls or golf. I said golf. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I do think this is like a, a funny situation. I was saying to you before that golf has gotten criticism for being sort of an airhead at times. There's the stuff from hard knocks way back when, where he didn't know whether the sunrise in the East or the West there's the like genuinely didn't know there's the stuff um you know about mcveigh determining that he's not the quarterback from mostly from all the reporting from a mental perspective to run his offense and trades him to detroit which by the way dan campbell acknowledged in their first playoff win in 30 years in the locker room he gives a whole speech about brad holmes and gives one of two uh, game balls to brad holmes the general manager and then when it's time for jared goff's game ball he says i'll just put it this way you're good enough for Detroit. And he throws in the game ball and the whole team cheers. And everyone is very aware of this narrative that for some reason, maybe their quarterback isn't good enough. And they're saying you are good enough. Just saying that obviously gives some credibility to this idea that maybe Jared Goff isn't the sharpest tool in the shed. This to me is a very low football IQ thing where, I mean, I, I understand sort of just, you know, resting on your laurels a little bit, but there's just no, explanation for snapping the ball early when you need to run the play clock down. It's the only thing you should be thinking about. And as a quarterback, you have to have a certain degree of football IQ in all situations. I do think there's a lot of stuff Jared Goff does very well, but this to me was just, there's a, for people that like to defend Jared Goff and say all that stuff isn't fair. There's a reason that he has that whatever narrative placed over his head this is one of the reasons you cannot snap the ball with 15 seconds when it becomes a situation where you're going to put the, the, the way the timing lines up is you're giving your opponent 15 more seconds potentially. And then when they didn't call the timeout on second down, he did it again on third down and gave them 30 potential seconds. If they did use the timeout to then play with. So just a really bizarre sequence from both sides, including from bowls decided not to call the timeout. It doesn't make any sense. Wild, wild, wild situation. Ben, the Sean, reason that he gets that criticism is that he, like my other favorite, Andy Dalton, cannot throw the ball outside in any but the very best conditions. But what we saw from his opponent coming up this week is that maybe he can't either. You were adamant that Brock Purdy's success this season was dependent on his weapons we made the case that he's had an MVP caliber season, but wasn't necessarily unanimous type of thing. Brock Purdy looked like Andy Dalton in bad weather in this game against the Packers, where it doesn't really show up statistically. But if you watch this game, which I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast did, it was 
I mean, I have no idea how the 49ers won because the Packers completely yeah. and totally dominated and blew it on like three different occasions, really. Yeah. I, I tweeted it. Throw the ball. And once he didn't have Debo Samuel, they didn't even look that talented other than their running back was the hero. I mean, are you going to give the Lions a, a shot in this NFC championship game? Oh, I, I think absolutely you have to give them a shot after what we saw from the Niners. It was wild. And, and particularly how much you weight you put on, on Debo Samuel going out, impacting their offense, which to some degree people are saying you, you, you can't blame all this on Debo Samuel. Brock Purdy's not playing well, and I think that's fair. To the other degree, I think it's very fair to say that Debo Samuel is underrated still somehow. Where like He does so much for their offense and their scheme and their versatility. The play and in the this players, game... I mean, you mentioned how the players were giving Christian McCaffrey credit for being potentially the MVP. The players in the aftermath of this game were just like, yeah, once Debo went out, like we can't do most of the stuff we want to do. Right. That's the play in this cut. Yeah, it's pretty, it's very cut and dry. The so I, I was gonna say I tweeted around halftime that Green Bay massively outplayed the Packers in the first half, but they had to feel horrible to go into the locker room down seven to six. The they they really dominated the possession. They were very, very good offensively, and, and Purdy was having issues from the beginning. And they were potentially going to go down even more, but the, the 49ers do miss a field goal right before the half. The Niners did have a good touchdown drive, but for the Packers to not convert the TDs, we talked about this earlier in the show, you got to get the seven. They get two long field goal drives in the first half and a turnover on downs in field goal range. They only score six points in the first half despite three drives of 10-plus uh, plays and over four and a half minutes and over 58 yards of driving length. Um, very impressive offensive performance in the first half to only come out of that with six points and be down seven to six. So that was the first issue. But the play in this game, I, I thought the Niners would come out of the locker room and kind of turn it on. And the play of this game, and, and so then that was the big issue. The Packers outplayed them in the first half, but it wasn't showing on the scoreline. And then what happens when the Niners shake off the rust? Because they did sit all their guys in week 18. They had already locked up the number one seed. They did have the wild card weekend off. I don't think the rusting's a huge deal, but it is. There's probably some degree of, hey, the Packers just won a, and are on fire and just won a game in Dallas last week and feel confident coming into this game and just played a game in full pads last week and you haven't played a game for three weeks because you've had the last two weeks off. Some of these players, some of the players played in week 18. There's probably some degree of element of that in the first half. I think I was expecting them to come out and play really well in the second half. The play to me that defined this game is the first snap of the second half, the 49ers give a handoff out of the shotgun to Jawan Jennings. They're like, we don't have Debo, so we're going to call the play to Jawan Jennings in the backfield that would clearly be a Debo play, and it goes from negative one yard. You can't just make Jawan Jennings into Debo is what we immediately see. They go three and out after that because they put themselves in a second and 11, even though Purdy completes a seven-yard pass on second down. They're third and four. They get in a complete pass punt. And you're like, wow, I mean, they needed to do more than that on their first drive of the second half. Packers go down and score a touchdown. They take the lead. They Packers continue to more or less outplay the Niners the whole second half. McCaffrey has a 40-yard touchdown run that keeps the Niners close is really the way to put that. But then, as you said, I mean, both sides kind of make some mistakes. Jordan Love melts down a little bit. The Niners seem to give it away multiple times. That punt from the plus 40 – they're down four, the 49ers. They do have three straight 
or excuse me, it was actually only two straight incompletions. There was a no yard game completion on first and 10. I'm looking at the game log right now. I didn't remember it this way, but anyway, they're at fourth and 10 on the 40 yard line, the plus 40, meaning they could kick a 57 yard field goal. They're not going to kick a 57 yard field goal in this spot. I was very critical on social media at the, at the time of this punt that they should have went for it, even though it was fourth and 10. One of the very common responses is they can't go for it on fourth and 10 because they can't even complete a pass. And I do understand that point, but Sean, we talk about this all the time. It is a game of possessions. You can't just give away possessions when you're down. Your opponent can score back on you and make it a two-possession game, and you can look back and say, we needed to score on that drive. They were not in a situation where there was a huge risk of field position if they didn't get uh, the, the conversion. If they give the ball up at the 40, yeah, it's a, an advantage to the Packers to be at the 40, but it's not like – they're going forward on their own 20-yard line. The Packers are already in field goal range. Their defense could still come out and get a stop, which is what you're hoping for when you punt, that they come out and get a stop at the 10. It's a 30-yard net punt, and it doesn't really matter, but it is worth noting that the very first play on the next drive, Aaron Jones runs for 53 yards and, and gobbles up those 30 yards and more and puts them in plus field position, the Packers in plus field position. The point is it's not as damaging to turn the ball over at the plus 40 as the uh, doomsdayers will have you believe when they say you can't go for it there, you have to punt. Uh, one of the criticisms I got, I kind of laughed at. I thought it was kind of funny. It was like all these millennial fantasy football guys love to just say punt it when it's an op- or go for it when it's an obvious punt situation. And it has always been a punt situation. But I would, when I take that criticism, which is you know in some respects fair, a lot of us younger people who watch the the games want to encourage more aggressiveness there's an easy way to refute that which in my opinion is the only reason that you're saying that you have to punt there is because that has been the traditional way to play it not because it actually makes sense if you actually look through and think through what you're gaining by punting it you're locking in a change of possession and you're just gaining 30 yards of field position I'm not saying 30 yards of field position doesn't matter, but the change of possession is so much more important. And what people who talk about this needing to be a punt fail to realize is there are situations where you can convert. And in in fact, there are situations where you can convert without even completing the pass on fourth down. Maybe you get one of the defensive penalties, which by the way, the Packers got earlier in that game on third and 15, they throw deep. And Jordan Love massively underthrows it, but you get a San Francisco 49ers defender out of position. He tackles uh, Bo Melton on the play. They get like a 41-yard pass interference on third and 15 where they would have had to punt because it would have been fourth and 15. They score a touchdown on the very next play. It's a massive swing in the game earlier. You have to go for it because something like that can happen. But also just, again, the defeatist mentality of we can't go for it on fourth because we didn't complete a pass on first through third, that doesn't mean you won't complete a pass on fourth. It's still possible you can complete a pass on fourth. If you think it's not possible you can complete a pass on fourth, then you're not going to score on the next drive. You have to be able to score points. It almost argues that you have to go for it more if you think that your offense sucks because you need to take advantage of the fact that you're at the 40-yard line and go score on this drive because you can't trust that next drive you're going to be able to drive the whole length of the field. You're already in plus territory. You need to convert now. 
So at, at any rate, there's, to, in, in my opinion, there is just no justification for this punt. I saw a lot of justifications that you have to punt because you've always punted. And because they couldn't complete a pass, you got to do it. The Packers, and, and what's so funny about this, and the counter also would be the Niners still wound up winning. So they didn't do anything wrong. The Packers proved why you have to go for it there by driving immediately into San Francisco territory. And they could have easily scored a touchdown. And if they do, the game's probably over, 28-17. Instead, they do get stopped. Good stop by the Niners. And then they miss a 41-yard field goal. You can't bank a strategy on a missed 41-yard field goal, but that is one of those variance things that will change outcomes, not decision processes in football games. But don't be confused by the missed 41-yard field goal and think that the Niners made the right decision. The odds are very overwhelmingly in the Packers' favor of making that field goal, which still would have just meant a tie game at the end of this game or after the or after the 49ers scored, but you would have had overtime. You would have had more elements. And, the, again, the Packers could have scored a touchdown on that drive. And the way they were driving in the second half and in the first half offensively all game, you can't just give up possession in plus territory. Or put differently, even if you go for it and don't convert, the Packers would have potentially had the exact same situation. They could have drove down and had a field goal just like they did from their own 10. It doesn't change anything about their next possession other than field position that they showed they could then gobble up that field position. It's not until you get to the red zone where the the plays really can get you know extreme and the field condenses and, and some of that stuff. At any rate, Niners still managed, despite that decision in the fourth fourth quarter, to win in part because of that missed field goal. Then they do get a long drive with three third down conversions and score with about a minute left. The Packers are not able to answer within that final minute. And the Niners completely steal this game despite poor play from their quarterback, which what, what we did talk about during the season. Look, his, his numbers were very MVP, you know, in the discussion for MVP, but you, he's not the most valuable player even probably on his own team, to be fair. Certainly, in my opinion, never really should have been in the entire league. A lot of what happened since those discussions did kind of show that. I'm not trying to pile on him because I also think Brock Purdy is very good. I just think at that time he was being held up a little bit too high to be said that he was the most valuable player in the entire NFL is a, is a big, big statement. At any rate, we, we see Brock Purdy play, not a very good game. We see a big time coaching mistake in the fourth quarter. And we see some, some issues with the 49ers defense throughout this game. And still somehow the Niners, it's an all time survive and advance game. And if you're a Packer fan, man, it feels terrible. It's an all-time, we should have won this game. How did we not win this game? I'm not piling on you, Packers fans. I'm commiserating. I've been there with my own teams many, many times. It hurts. It sucks as a fan to know that your team played incredibly well against a team everyone thought was better than you. They were 10-point favorites, and you should have been able to go into their building and win, and you deserve to win but you weren't able to pull it out because there is variance in football games, man. The, the team that deserves to win doesn't always win. And it's a weird one when it's the 10 point underdog is clearly the team that deserves to win, but they didn't win. Yeah. And the, I mean, the plays were out there for the Packers to make and the errors did not seem to be forced by the 49ers. Obviously the game in another spot turns when Jordan love misses Tucker craft pretty much wide open otherwise love played fairly well until the pass at the end you know you talk about that drive where the 49ers don't go for it 
you know, we've been critical of Purdy, but that was only a few plays after he makes his best throw of the game to Juwan Jennings. The blame also needs to be spread around in this game to George Kittle and Brandon Ayuk, who in the absence of Debo Samuel, you know, need to show what we've claimed, which is that they're awesome. One of the things that we got last week, even in a very dispiriting Philadelphia Eagles loss, was more evidence that Devontae Smith is actually awesome. And when they didn't have other players, he did at least step up, even though it didn't make a huge difference in that game. Brandon Ayuk has generated crazy peripherals this season, and there has been plenty of reason to believe that if he were more or less the guy here in San Francisco, that he would be putting up, you know, epic numbers would be considered a top five wide receiver in the NFL. He completely disappeared in this game. Wasn't showing off the explosiveness in the, in the route running that we tend to think of for him. Wasn't showing competitiveness at the catch point. You have George Kittle with the big 32 yard touchdown early. And you know, you have to count all the plays. You can't be like, Oh, except for the, actually the really good play the person made, but Kittle disappears after that. He has a bad drop. Those guys have to make some plays and you know, you go back to that decision to punt. As you mentioned, one of the things there that is easy to overlook is that on those big plays like that, the defensive penalties tend to really jump up and haunt the defensive team, right? If you make them play on that, the temptation to hold or to interfere is so high. You see that very, very consistently. So you don't necessarily have to complete a pass in order to convert that fourth down Ben, it's also interesting as we sort of look through this game i mean one of the things for me as i was watching this as a big lions fan i'm thinking i mean we're so close now to having even though you don't know the lions are going to win for sure but i was maybe more confident <laughs> than was deserved i i felt like it was virtually a hundred percent that the lions were going to beat the Buccaneers. like so close to having the lions host the nfc championship right. game and for them, Detroit fans awesome. are hoping. Yeah, Detroit yeah. fans are really rooting for for the Packers, which is not not common for them. But in that situation, they might have a home NFC Championship game. And the Lions, as we've been through, have this huge home and away split. It's one of the reasons why, obviously, the 49ers are still big, big favorites, despite how poorly they played in this game. But yeah, I mean, if you're a Packers fan, are you scared of going into Detroit after you've gone into? San Francisco. I mean, not at all. You're thinking we're just simply better across the board. And it would have been a fun game because neither of these teams really have very strong defenses. If you have Lions Packers in the NFC Championship game, and you're talking about a game going to the Super Bowl where you could be in the 40s. And so again, for fans, that would be kind of fun. Man, everything you're just saying, I hadn't really thought through the ramifications of, but that would have all been awesome. Um, And certainly the Packers would not have been worried. They're going to play their divisional rival after the teams that everyone thought were the best two teams in the NFC coming into the postseason, I don't think people were giving the Lions enough credit. But in a lot of the, you know, a lot of the uh, fantasy contests and things, it was, and, and the way that the odds were, it was the Niners and then the Cowboys, and that and that was really one of those two teams is going to represent the NFC. That was really the way it was looked at. The Lions, I think, were discredited as a, a legitimate third option. Well, and the Packers an afterthought, obviously, as being that third option. And I mean, the Rams deserved plenty of credit too. It's interesting. It's fallen out this way. It would have been very interesting if it had fallen out Lions Packers. Right. That would have been wild, but certainly the Packers having gone into Dallas and then to San Francisco couldn't have, couldn't have regretted or or been worried about going into, um, into Detroit. 
Another thing I just wanted to emphasize is, I mean, I, I, I apologize to the listeners. I've, I've went on some long rants in, in, in this, this show, but I said a couple times the game of possessions and why you can't punt there. The point that I want to emphasize about the game of possessions element is there's not enough time left in the fourth quarter that you're not going to get enough possessions back. And so they, the point I, I really was trying to emphasize was the Niners only get one more possession from that point forward. The Packers actually get t- two. They get down into field goal range and miss a field goal, and then they throw the interception at the end that you mentioned. With the time about what it was, it seems very likely in most scenarios, especially knowing that you have to drive and score and use up clock to do so, you being the San Francisco 49ers, that if you punt at that point, you're you're needing an, this is the exact outcome that happened for the Packers' drive to not generate any points, for your drive to generate a touchdown, not just a field goal because you're down four, and for the, the Packers' third, second drive, the third overall drive to, again, not generate any points. There's no leeway, really, unless – you know, some fluky thing happens. Maybe if you weren't able to score, then the Packers turn the ball over or something uh, while they're up and running clock and they fumble or something like that. But in most scenarios, you're looking at this as a game of possession saying, you have one more chance after this, plus your opponent has two more chances to extend their lead. They do end up winning because the Packers don't score on either of their drives and they score on theirs. And anytime these things tend to work out. You look at it, you'll see that. You'll see that one side didn't score on all their possessions. The other side did score on all their possessions. And sometimes that just works out. But you shouldn't, from a strategy perspective, put yourself in a situation where you have to prevent the opponent from scoring on all of their remaining drives and you have to score on all of your remaining drives. If you're getting into that math, that's when you have to go for it. That's when you have to hold on to possession as a very, very extreme thing because there's the possibility at any point from that point going forward that you're not able to score on a future drive. You can't put yourself into that much of a corner or that your opponent scores and extends their lead. You can't put yourself into that much of a corner. And yet it did work out for the Niners in this one. We, Sean, we didn't talk a lot about the Baltimore-Houston game. I thought you did a good job of kind of just recapping the high-level stuff. I didn't have any big notes on that game. That Stroud still played really well. Played much better than his last visit to Baltimore. You saw some of the growth. And they they had seen him before, and they knew the offense, and they'd shut down the offense before. But you see Houston evolve a little bit and look good and play a good first half. But then in the second half, the Ravens show they're a little bit better. They have some long drives. One of my minor notes on that game was I saw some tweets during that point that people were saying that the Ravens, you know, if they play like this, they're going to win the Super Bowl because people love eight-minute drives. When you, when you see a team put together an eight-minute drive – you think that team's winning the Super Bowl. Like, that's the best team I've ever seen. I saw some tweets similarly in the Packers game that they were dominating the 49ers because of those long drives in the first half. And that the flip side of that was, well, I mean, they only had a couple of drives. They were running a lot of clock, and they weren't converting touchdowns at the end of them. They ended up down 7-6 at halftime despite dominating the first half. The length of the drive and the time of possession didn't help them on the scoreboard in the first half of that Packers 49ers game. We saw the same thing in the second half of the Ravens game, but we also saw points in that game when you do shut down the run and that success rate element of the eight-minute drives, do you have something else to go to? And the Ravens at times look like they maybe didn't. So personally, I mean, the Ravens have an incredible defense. They have an incredible offense. They're hosting the game, but I'm certainly not writing off the Chiefs as underdogs. I don't think anyone is. It's Patrick Mahomes. But particularly from the from the Ravens' strength perspective, I think it's a very, very good team, but I think people overvalue 
when they see a, a team's dominance, when they see the types of drives that the Ravens were able to put together in the second half of Houston, uh, of the Houston win to pull away. And uh, I think are a little bit too high on the Ravens at this moment. I've seen some stuff suggest that they are clearly the favorites to win the Super Bowl. I don't know if I buy that. I think that I would probably still take the Niners over the Ravens, for example, if we do get that matchup. It's going to be a fun conference championship weekend. We're down to the final four teams. The Lions are definitely live in San Francisco. We talked through that. The Chiefs Bill, uh, excuse me, Chiefs Ravens after Chiefs Bills, going to be another classic in the AFC between two great quarterbacks, two great teams. And then we'll get a Super Bowl behind that. Three more games left in the season. But this divisional round weekend is always so fun. It weeds out four of the remaining eight teams. It really is sort of now we're, we're down to the very end of it. But it sort of is the last kind of big weekend, it feels like, a football to me. Um, so it was fun to talk through it with you. Yeah, it's so much fun. It'll be a blast to see these two conference championship games. Whether the Ravens have that answer against a team with a much you know, better offense. I think that you can say that even with what Stroud has done with a much better defense. You know, do they have the secondary guys to go to? Obviously, they didn't really unlock any of the receiving weapons against the Texans. When you have that pressure in the third quarter and the fourth quarter, what does Lamar Jackson do? We know that the accuracy can be inconsistent, and yet, I mean, Lamar Jackson is basically the next level up from Josh Allen in that his ability with the ball in his hands as a playmaker creates problems for defenses that just simply don't exist in any other game. And so the way that you have to play him is so unique. If the Ravens are able to make some of those plays on third and fourth down, I think you have to like their chances. Ben, I think that the Chiefs and the Ravens both have better defenses than the 49ers at this point in the season. I like the AFC champion to win the Super Bowl. We'll see how that goes, but it's been an absolute blast recapping these games with you and and especially thinking through some of the reality elements that were so interesting from these contests. That'll do it for today's episode of Stealing Bananas. I'm Sean Siegel. With me, as always, is Ben Gretsch. You can follow at Yards Per Gretsch. Make sure you sign up for Stealing Signals, Stealing Lines, Stealing Signals Gold. We'd love to have you all over at Rotoviz, and our coupon code has updated to RV Radio 2024 at checkout for that discount on the one-year subscription. We thank all of you for the ratings and reviews. Those help us out a lot. Good luck if you have playoff teams live this weekend and need specific plays to win tens of thousands of dollars. Good luck to all the fans as you root for your teams down the stretch. We'll talk to you guys soon. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. 
Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.